Let's go to our Bibles and turn to page 648. And Joe and Alicia will bring us our Bible readings. So it's Amos chapter 3 and 4, and we're starting at verse 1, so 648. Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth where there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard, plunder and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd says from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved, those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the, on the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Amos chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You'll each go straight out through breaks in the wall, and you'll be cast out toward Hamon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink. 
yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your men, young men, with a sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountains, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness, and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Are we on the air? We're on the air. Welcome along to church tonight. If you're regular, if you're new, particularly if you're new, welcome along. We'd love to keep chatting with you over dinner in the hall afterwards. But now we come to a precious time of our service as we have just heard God speak to us through his word. Uh, let's pray uh, that uh, he might continue to do so uh, through my words that we might come to know and love our God better. So please join me in prayer. Uh, God, you are the Almighty One, the Sovereign Lord who has revealed himself to his creation. And you have just revealed yourself now to us through your word because you love us and because you want us to know you and to know the joys and the blessings of being known by you. Father, as we study your word for the next little while, I pray for your presence with me to avoid saying anything that is false, anything that distracts us from your truth and your glory, uh, that you might speak through me into our hearts, that we might be people who truly love you with all our heart, soul and mind. Amen. There's a well-known one-liner that goes like this. God made us in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. God made us in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. Does that ring true from your observation and experience, this desire to create God in your own image? Earlier this week, uh, I came across a speech that Joe Hockey gave, uh, our member for North Sydney, to the Sydney Institute. The speech was entitled, In Defence of God. Did anyone read it or see it? Yeah. It, reading this speech, I didn't see it at the time. I read the transcript afterwards. I was reminded of this common theme that has existed throughout humanity, and that is our desire to create God in our own image for us to decide what God is like and how he acts. Mr. Hockey said a few things. I'd just like to read out a couple of quotes. He said, I do not accept that any of the great religions envisage a God or a divine force that sanctions the worst failings of humanity. Religion asks of us to become better people, 
to choose a life of giving and compassion. This golden rule is a thread that runs from Confucius to Christianity and from Buddhism to Islam. He continues, For me, this is the essential message of all faiths, that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The God of my faith is not full of revenge, as the Old Testament would suggest with a literal interpretation. The God of my faith does not cause earthquakes or tsunamis as acts of retribution. It is not a loving God that willfully inflicts pain and suffering. No God of any mainstream religion would do that if God's love is real. End quote. Now, in quoting Mr. Hockey, I'll make it clear I'm not making any political statement about the Liberal Party or even uh, Mr. Hockey himself. In fact, the reason that I'm sharing this quote with you is because he so eloquently summed up what so many of us think. We create my God and we define, using our own imagination, what our God would do. And strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, our God acts in the ways that we would act. And all too often, this God bears very little resemblance with how God has revealed himself to us already in his word. But you see, friends, and this is the first point, God isn't a piece of clay that we get to mold into our own creation. It's not up to us to decide what God is like. Because God, the Lord God Almighty has revealed himself to us. His character is not a mystery and his plans are not a surprise. I love chapter 4 verse 13. It's my favorite verse in this passage because it speaks so powerfully about what God is like. Take a look with me. Uh, Page 649, chapter 4 verse 13. He who forms the mountains, who creates the winds and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. One of the great and beautiful truths of the Bible is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so we don't have to make up this invisible image of what God is like because he's already revealed his plans to us. So take a look again at chapter 3 verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servant, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? We got this picture last week of the lion roaring, and we see it again this week as the sovereign Lord speaks and reveals his plans to his creation. And we, as God's people, 2,769 Odd years later, after this prophecy of Amos, have the privilege of looking back and seeing God's full and complete revelation in his son, Jesus, who came to reveal God to us. And friends, that is why the Bible is so precious to us, because it reveals God to us, his plans, his purposes, and ultimately his son. This is why it is precious. This is why we bother to read it during the week and preach on it on a Sunday night. But what God reveals about himself when we open up the Bible and read about his plans and purposes may be a surprise to us sometimes. Because the God of the Bible may act very differently to the God of our imagination. Let me ask you this question. If you were to design your own God as stupid a suggestion as that might be, that we could somehow create our own God. 
But if you were to design your own God, would you design a God who would punish you when you did wrong? Is that the kind of God that you would create? I don't think any of us would choose that. And that's because we are all active uh, seekers, uh, avoiding punishment. None of us like to be punished. Now, when we were children, uh, none of us would go to dad or to mum or whoever carried out the disciplinary procedures in our home and walk up to them and say, Dad, got a wooden spoon and a belt. You take your pick. I've done wrong, okay? I'm going to bend over now and I want you to punish me. Then after you've punished me, I'm going to go up to my room for an hour and think long and hard about what I've done. None of us do that because we all try and avoid punishment. It doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult, we're all the same. We're trying to get out of punishment. But friends, we're reminded over and over again throughout the Bible that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes God acts in ways that we would not choose. And in this passage, we see clearly that God is active and purposeful in inflicting punishment on his people for the precise reason that they are his people. So did you see that in verse 2 of chapter 3? God says, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Now, if you were here last week, it would have been very clear why God uh, needed to punish his people. And God's people had experienced the love uh, and revelation and blessing and promises from God, and yet they were living no different to the rest of the world. We see that the people were living in injustice and oppression, uh, sexually immoral, uh, people who were idolaters. They had, all these sinful activities had become common behavior for God's people. And we are reminded again this week, as the word was read to us, of uh, the continued sin that God's people are living in. So we read in verse 10 of chapter 3, uh, that damning revelation that God sends that they do not know how to do right. We read again in verse 14 and 15 that God's people are living in luxury. This grand picture of them with their summer homes and their winter homes, adorned with ivory, whilst others are living in poverty and oppression. We read of these women in chapter 4 verse 1, these cows of Bashan, oppressing the poor, crushing their needy, and calling on their husbands to bring us some drinks. And then we see finally in uh, 4 verse 6, these terrible sacrifices that God's people are making when they come and meet together uh, as his people. This pride, boastful sacrifices they are making that God is in no way pleased with. And Paul will expand on this displeasing worship in coming weeks. But we see in this passage that because they are God's people, because they are God's people, God will punish them for their sins. Being one of God's isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, a picture of joy and happiness and blessing and avoidance of all suffering and pain ever again. No, God will punish his people. It doesn't sound very appealing, does it? This picture of a God punishing his people. Now, when you heard that, 
I didn't see anyone or hear anyone in the pews jump up and say, Praise the Lord. God punishes his people. But friends, it is also clear from this passage that God's punishment has a purpose. And God's punishment and the existence of this punishment is not a denial of God's love, as Mr. Hockey and thousands of others would suggest. It is, in fact, quite the opposite. In this passage, we see that God brings punishment on his people because he is loving. Because God loves his people. Friends, God's punishment is a gracious act. It is a warning and an encouragement for God's people who have drifted and wandered away from him and into sin and idolatry to come back to God. Take a look with me at chapter 4, verse 6. As we see the way that God had been working in their lives. 4, 6. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. The people staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You are like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Over and over again, the pattern is obvious. All this suffering and affliction was sent by God for the purpose of his people returning to him. God loves his people. That is an inescapable truth of the Bible. And because God loves his people, he wants them to return to him. And the consistent and the persistent and the repetitive call over and over again in the Bible and particularly through the prophets like Amos is God standing before his people saying, Return to me. Return to me. Return to me. Please return to me. And we know, brothers and sisters, from our own experience, there's nothing quite like suffering to bring us back to God. We know that there is nothing quite like suffering to realize that we are pitiful people who have very little control over just about every detail in our lives. And we need God's love and presence and power and forgiveness in our lives. What is staggering in this picture is I'm reminded that who would have thought that God's punishment would be such a gracious act in bringing his people back to him? And friends, that's the truth that is made clear for us in the passage, that discomfort and suffering and pain are sometimes sent by God to his people to urge them desperately to come back to him.
discomfort and suffering and pain are sometimes sent by God to his people to urge them to come back to him. Now, I want to be super clear here because I know after speaking about suffering and God, some people are going to come away and mishear me, and I don't want that to happen. So if you are someone who is prone to mishearing, listen up. Just because you are suffering or your friend is suffering or someone you know is suffering does not mean that you or they necessarily need to return to God. Got it? No one walk out of here thinking that someone suffering automatically equals the need to return to God. That is not what the Bible says. But I don't want us to miss the point of what God is explaining in this passage, that the difficult times that you might be experiencing in your life now could be, might be, might be God's call for you to come back to him. Okay? The difficult times you are currently experiencing might be God's call for you to return to him. Friends, this isn't a, a, a truth that is revealed only to us by the prophet Amos. It's a truth that continues to stand out throughout the Bible. Let's take a look at a couple of verses. Proverbs three eleven to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And in Hebrews we read, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us For our good, that we may share in his holiness. And finally, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So friends, in the midst of suffering, of discomfort, of pain, we need to look inwardly and ask ask ourselves the question, do I need to return to God? And so that's the question that I'll ask you now finally. (laughs) Do you need to return to God? Have you wandered away from the one true God? And do you need to return to him? Friends, I think most of the time we know when we need to return to God. We look at our lives and we see where we once were. We see the joy that we once had in God's presence and the intimacy and the fellowship of God and his word. We look at our lives and we see the sin that we have fallen into and that we have allowed to settle deep within us and take up comfortable residence in our lives. The fight against that sin has gone. We can see it when we have found and taken greater pleasure in the things that God has created than in God himself. Often, it is very clear to us that we need to return to God. But sometimes, this self-examination isn't enough to bring us back. And so, as C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the question I've been wrestling with this week is this. How might God be shouting to us through our suffering to urge us to return to him?
I was reflecting on what we read in Amos and the suffering that was experienced by God's people. We saw it in that pattern from 4 verse 6 in particular, the suffering that God sent. You know, they had drought and they had floods and the bugs were attacking their crops. And on reflection, I realized that this is very unlike the experience of most of us sitting here today. Sure, drought and floods still come to our country. In fact, we are especially prone to those things. But we, as people living here on the lower North Shore, only experience that when we walk into Harris Farm on a Sunday morning, discover bananas at $16.99 a kilo, and decide we'll have apples in our fruit salad instead. Our pain at the drought and the flood is so often far, far removed from those people who are experiencing that on the front line. And so I considered this week myself, and I considered you, and I considered all the different ways that we suffer. And there is some real suffering that's going on here. And again, just to reiterate, doesn't mean you need to return to God. But I was reflecting on the different ways that we suffer in this place as God's people. And I looked at myself and us and came up with a common theme. It's a way I think God may be speaking to us today to urge us to return to him. It's one word, and that word is dissatisfaction. We are just so dissatisfied, aren't we? In so many ways. We're dissatisfied with our jobs. We're dissatisfied with our relationships. We're dissatisfied with how we look. We're dissatisfied with our career progress. We're dissatisfied with our levels of education. We're dissatisfied with our levels of income. We're dissatisfied with our stage of life. We're dissatisfied when we compare ourselves with our friends and family and where they're up to at this stage of life. We're dissatisfied with the amount of overseas travel we've got to do. We're dissatisfied with our fitness levels. We're dissatisfied with how many clothes we own. We're dissatisfied with the mobile phone we own. We're dissatisfied with the car we drive. We're dissatisfied with where we live. We're dissatisfied with the size of our investment portfolio. We're dissatisfied with the amount of leisure time we have. We're dissatisfied with how we use that leisure time. We're dissatisfied with everything. What are you dissatisfied with? Curiously, I find in myself and in my conversations with people here at church that we often don't express our dissatisfaction in regards to the things of God. Rarely do we discuss with one another, I'm so dissatisfied with my Bible reading. I'm so dissatisfied with the amount of time I get to spend with God each week. I'm so dissatisfied with the amount of time I get to serve God and his people. I'm so dissatisfied with the sin in my life. I'm so dissatisfied with my pursuit of holiness. These things don't seem to dissatisfy us, but many other things do. And I put it to us, church, that perhaps so much of the dissatisfaction and the lack of content that we feel in so many ways of our life is brought about by God to cause us to turn from our idols that can never satisfy and return to the God who can and always will. 
And I put it to us, church, that because God loves us, he refuses to let us find satisfaction in those things that are so empty. And he is urging us to flee these idols and return to him. Now, I personally have struggled a lot with satisfaction, and I still do. But particularly in the past, before I came to this church, in fact, my lack of satisfaction was a big reason why it took me so long to come and do MTS. I loved my job. I loved the money that I received. I loved the promotions that I got. I was proud. I loved the prestige that is received in the work that I did. And yet I was never satisfied with that. I had more than enough money that I needed, but I'd be awake at night worrying about my money. I had a great job, and I was completely dissatisfied with the things that God had given me. And God was refusing to let me find pleasure in my idols of work and power and prestige and money and urging me to find my satisfaction in him. Maybe God is at work in you in this same way today. Maybe God is calling you to turn from your idols, whatever they are in your life. For me, it was work and money and prestige. For you, perhaps it's selfishness or envy or pride or greed or materialism. I don't know what it is for you. (laughs) You know what your idols are. And perhaps God is saying to you, I'm not going to give you any satisfaction in those things because all true joy and satisfaction and contentment and hope and purpose can only be found in God. That is the only place that we will be filled. Our idols will always come up miserably empty. Perhaps you don't need to return to God. Perhaps this word isn't particularly to you. But I urge you to take a moment and consider who you know, who you see drifting or has drifted away from God. Perhaps it's someone who was in this gathering once, someone who came to church here with us at 6.30 each week and who we now no longer see anymore. And perhaps to our shame, we don't even know why or we don't even notice. Those people who once fellowshiped with us and are now long gone. Or perhaps there are people who are here, who still continue to come, who we know, who've given in to sin, who've given in to these things that God describes in his people there of idolatry and oppression and injustice and sexual immorality, who have wandered away from God actively in their lives but still come and meet with God's people. Both ways, they've wandered from God and they've left their first love. And I urge us, because of God's love and because of God's judgment, to care enough about our brothers and sisters who have wandered or who are drifting away from God, to gently and humbly and patiently pursue them and love them and bring them back to God. Have you got those people in your mind? If it's not you, (laughs) who is it? 
Who do you need to give a call to tonight? Organize a coffee later in the week and lovingly encourage your brother or sister to come back to God. Friends, a God of our own making might be very convenient, but this is not the God of the Bible. And whilst we might not ever create a God who punishes us or sends suffering, God's punishment is his gracious display of his love for us in wanting our good and wanting us to come back to him. So if you are drifting, please come back. If you know those who are drifting, please urge them to come back. And if you are any doubt, in any doubt at all, of God's desire for you to return to him, or if this is the first time you have heard about God's punishment and judgment on sin, and you're wondering if God would like you to come back to him, then you need look no further than the cross where we see God's son, the saviour of the world, hanging in the most awesome, complete, powerful display of God saying, yes, I want you to come back to me. That is what the cross screams. God saying to his creation, I want you back. Please come back to me. Friends, he who forms the mountains, creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name and he wants you to return to him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we read in your word this beautiful truth that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And Father, we know that we were like sheep going astray, but we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Father, if there are sheep here tonight who have gone astray, who have wandered far from you, or have put their first steps on that path to walking away, would you please bring them back? Convict them, Father, please, of your love for them and desire for them to come back to you. Father, convict us all of the beautiful truth that Jesus cross, Jesus on the cross screams, I want you to come back to me. Father, for those amongst us, for those who have left us, who are drifting away, give us graciousness, gentleness, patience and love to bring our brothers and sisters back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we pray this as we pray for everything that our Saviour Jesus might be glorified. Amen.